Thanks, band. Good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we want to thank you for joining us, especially if you're a visitor. Thanks for uh, giving us a few hours of your Sunday morning. Uh, I have to confess something to you guys. Maybe most of you don't know this, but I absolutely love cereal. But the problem is I am lactose intolerant. And so uh, I, you know, would, in college would eat four, five, six bowls of cereal a day. Absolutely loved it. I could not help myself, even though I knew it would just eventually uh, destroy me. And so e- even like currently, I, I'll have a bowl of cereal every few months, and then afterwards I'll tell my wife, oh, Amy, don't, don't ever let me do this again. This was such a bad idea. Was not worth the three minutes of, of glorious, you know, cinnamon toast crunch heaven. Uh, it's just not worth it. So the point being, uh, there's some things in our lives that we know are not good for us, uh, or maybe are just even wrong, bad, sinful, yet we just can't help ourselves. So silly, silly example, I know. We're going to get to a bit more serious stuff in uh, just a minute here. But uh, right now we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of John. So John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he's writing about his eyewitness accounts of, of Jesus' teachings, his miracles, uh, everything that he has done. And so right now we are in John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 31 through 38. You can follow along in the pew Bible in front of you if you'd like, or all the stuff will be on the screen for you as well if you want to follow along. And in this passage, we're going to see how Jesus uh, teaches and, and gives freedom to those people who are enslaved by something, something much more severe than lactose intolerance. So uh, if you want to flip in your Bibles to this passage, or it's also in the insert in your worship folder, we will read. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. All right, so right off the bat, Jesus is speaking to this group of people, and it's kind of confusing because it says uh, he's speaking to Jews that had believed in him. So based on what comes next, just that they don't receive Jesus, they're angry with him, they have this negative interaction, and then next week we're going to see even more clear that they are uh, against Jesus, at least some, to some extent. Probably the best way to understand this, where it says Jesus was speaking to Jews who had believed, is to see that in the past. So ED at the end, like these people used to believe, but no longer believe anymore. Or at the very least, they had believed, but now their faith is shaky, maybe they're wavering, maybe they're starting to leave Jesus, or maybe their faith wasn't legit at all. So that's the type of people Jesus uh, is, is speaking to. People who have seen his miracles, seen his teaching, seen his authority, and they liked some of it, they received some of it, but they're pushing back because he's saying some unbelievable things, some crazy things, some hard things, and doing some things that they just cannot figure out. And so Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews who had believed, had once believed, and are wavering, if not have fully left him. 
So Jesus starts off with this saying. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So speaking to a group of doubters, a group of backsliders, a group of people who are more confident in themselves than in following Jesus the Messiah. And so he tells them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And there's a number of things going on. For sure, there's a surface level where Jesus is just saying, hey, I am a rabbi. I am a a master. I am a teacher. And if you really say you're my disciples, my apprentices, like a disciple obeys and follows the words of their rabbi, of their master, which just kind of makes sense on a surface level. Jesus says, abide in my word. So abide, that's kind of a word we don't use too often, but abide can mean stick with or dwell in, or make your home in my word, Jesus says, and you will be a true disciple of mine. So at very surface level, Jesus is just telling these people, well, if you want to be my disciples, you need to abide in my word. You need to believe me. You need to follow me. You need to trust me. But on a much deeper level, uh, and we're going to see this become more and more clear as we go through John, as we get closer to Jesus' death and resurrection. On a much deeper level, Jesus' word, his ultimate word, is the gospel. It's his good news that he will die in our place for our sins, rise victoriously, and for all who have faith in him, he will give them forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So Jesus' word is the gospel, and he's telling them, if you abide in the gospel, if you stay in and believe and make your home in the gospel— you will be my disciples, which, which makes sense, right? The rest of the New Testament says, if you believe the gospel, you will be saved. So that's what is going on here. Later, John, he'll come back and even unpack this idea of abiding in Christ even more uh, later on in John. Uh, John chapter 15, Jesus will tell them not to just abide in uh, his word, but to abide in his love and even to abide in Jesus himself. Many of our women at the women's retreat were taught by uh, Julie Detlefson, who did a fantastic job unpacking all of John 15, which uh, we're just going to look at two verses or one verse here. And Jesus is going to teach that out of that abiding, abiding in his word, abiding in his love, abiding in Jesus himself, spiritual fruit will naturally grow out of that. So in John 15, Jesus says, uh, so seven chapters in the future from where we're at here, He's going to say, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And if you're scratching your head, he makes it clear. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says, I am a vine and a branch cannot survive, right? You, you break a branch off of the vine, the, the branch withers up and dies. If the, the branch wants to bear fruit, it has to be connected to the vine. So Jesus says, abide in me, stick with me, make your home in me, and you will bear fruit. And without me, you will not bear any fruit. And back here in John 8, Jesus describes what this spiritual fruit that will grow from being connected to him, the vine. He's telling the Jews here, What will happen if they abide in his word as they believe in and make their home in the gospel? He tells them, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus' words are true. Jesus is trustworthy. 
My wife and I uh, love the TV show Survivor, reality TV show Survivor. 42 seasons, fantastic show. You probably at least know what it is. Anyway, the 20 people get stranded on a desert island. They have to do competitions, but they also vote each other off. And they're just constantly lying and betraying and deceiving each other. And, and uh, it even comes up in the show, but Amy and I talk to each other like, man, these people are going to be messed up when they go back to the real world. They're going to constantly be thinking, is this person lying to me? Are they telling the truth? Are they trying to get something out of me, deceiving me? But, but that is not Jesus. Jesus is trustworthy. Everything he says is true. There's no deceit in him. He doesn't even just speak the truth or even have the truth. But later in John, we're going to read in John 14, Jesus is going to say, I am truth. I don't just speak truth, which I do every single time, but I am truth. He's the embodiment of truth. And there's Jesus in his brilliant way, playing on words here. So Jesus says, you will know the truth. And Jesus is later going to say, I am the truth. So if we abide in in Jesus' words, we will know him, and he will be the one that sets us free. And we actually see just a few verses later, he actually says, it is the Son that will set you free. Capital S, Son, speaking of himself. But the big question that at least the audience is asking, I don't know if you thought about this as well, is what do we need to be freed from? Jesus says, it's a big deal. I'm going to free you. And the crowd's response, if you notice, is that they're upset with him. They don't say, how can we be better disciples? How can we receive your word? Help us in our doubts. Make this more clear to us. The crowd's response is, what do we need to be freed from? They answer him, Uh, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus gives them this great truth, and their response is defensiveness. And it's kind of strange. Commentators don't really know exactly what to do with this because if you know anything about the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, um, they kind of were enslaved kind of a lot. Like that's That's like who they are. Like they were enslaved in uh, Egypt for 400 years. Most of their celebrations and festivals commemorate this big time that they were enslaved. They have been enslaved by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and even currently, as they say this, they're being severely oppressed by the Romans. So I don't really know what's going on here. Commentators kind of don't know. Are they speaking in hyperbole? Are they naive? Are they lying? Uh, what, What is going on? But the point is, the main point here, is that they say, we are not slaves. We have never been slaves. We are Abraham's offspring. We are the Jewish people. So rather than receiving Jesus' words, they're defensive and saying, how dare you say that I am not free? What do I need to be freed from? Is their response. But Jesus responds to them. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Apart from Christ, Jesus is talking here about spiritual slavery. He's talking about being imprisoned, being chained down by our sin nature, by being born into sin. And it's, it's something that we have no hope of being free from. Not by working hard enough, not by figuring it out, we are slaves to our sin. Now, before we continue, 
uh, Jesus just used a really loaded word. Uh, we're, we're Americans in this room. We have a very painted past with a certain type of slavery. And so um, we wanted to just take a sidestep here and just briefly talk a bit about this. Uh, for many people, they, they think, or at least this is like a popular notion in, in our culture right now, the Bible condones slavery, so I can't trust the Bible. So the God of this book says it's okay for there to be slavery, thus I won't even open it. Thus, I hate that God. Thus, it's, 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 it's uh, patriarchal and, and, and backwards and racist. And so that sense that is very common um, and just something that hangs people up. Maybe you, you have these questions as well. There's for sure people in your life that have these questions. We're just going to take a minute to kind of step aside and uh, help us understand the context because Jesus uses these strong language about slavery and, and so does the New Testament. So, first thing we need to understand is that this word translated slavery, uh, both in the Greek and in the Hebrew, can also be translated bond servant or indentured servant. So think about someone who chooses to sell themselves into some type of servitude for, for a, a, a length of time in order to get housing, to get paid, to get food. That is much more the case of what slavery is in the Bible. And in fact, uh, author and pastor Jerome Gay writes about this. He says, what many fail to understand is that slavery in Bible, uh, biblical times was very different from the slavery that was practiced in the past few centuries in many parts of the world. In Bible times, slavery uh, was based primarily on economics. It was a matter of social status, not skin color. Believe it or not, people sold themselves as slaves when they could not pay their debts or provide for their families. Slavery was primarily indentured servitude, which at times was voluntary and never intended to be abused, nor was a person to be a slave forever. And we can actually find further clarity, the type of slavery that is described in the Bible, whether we read in the New Testament or the Old Testament, and see how it's distinctly different from what we think of when we think of slavery here in America in the past few hundred years. Exodus 21, so in the Old Testament law, Verse uh, 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone who is found in possession of the stolen person is uh, or shall be put to death. So capital punishment against people who would steal and enslave others. And in the New Testament, listed with a bunch of other horrible sins like murder and violence and abusers, someone who enslaves and steals other humans is listed right next to it. So we could talk a lot more about that. I don't want to minimize the importance of this conversation and this topic. We actually have had a number of classes on this topic, and it's in two of our regular classes that we have here at Hiawatha, where we do go in more depth. Um, but I did want to briefly address this because Jesus uses these very loaded words, at least in our cultural context, and he does it for a reason, and it's good for us, and we need to receive it. So hopefully this helps us understand what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying, and what the Bible does not say. If you want more on this, uh, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin is brilliant. She has an entire chapter specifically on this question, Does the Bible Condone Slavery? If you're interested, read that chapter. It, it's phenomenal. She answers probably all the questions that you might have with, with um, resources and, and footnotes and backing it up. The Whitewashing of Christianity, that's the one that I just quoted from, and also Reading While Black by Issa McCauley. Those are some great resources if this interests you. Or just come talk to me after the service. I would like to help uh, answer any questions you might have. But back to Jesus. Okay, so Jesus, 
He's teaching the crowd that thinks that they're okay. He's speaking to this crowd that thinks that they're free because they're physically not slaves. And Jesus is telling them that they have a problem, that they actually are enslaved to something. They're imprisoned by something they can't see and that they're naive about. And the same thing could be said for us. They're saying, hey, we're sons of Abraham. We're free. Why are you calling us slaves and that we need freedom? We could say the same thing, right? We're in America. We're in the land of the free. Or maybe like, I'm my own boss. Or uh, I'm in control of my own life. Or my own destiny. I serve no one. Maybe your inner self is arguing right now. If I really wanted, I could quit my job. I could get off this sports team or switch classes. I'm not serving or listening to anyone. What Jesus is doing here, he's pulling back the curtain of reality to show them and us that we are all imprisoned by our sin. It's like a, a chain wrapped around our leg that we can never be released from. We're slaves to our sin and unable to be released from it on our own power. Whether it's paying a debt, whether it's working hard, whatever it may be, we are stuck and we need something outside of us in order to save us. In fact, what Jesus says to this group, remember their big response is, hey, we're, we're not slaves, we're, we're Jews. We're Abraham's descendants. But then just a few verses later, what does Jesus say? He tells them, he tells them, you are slaves, and guess what? The slaves are outside of the home. Who's inside of the home? The son is inside of the home. But slaves are outside. They're not a part of the household. So he's helping them see that, yes, they are ethnically, biologically descendants of Abraham, yet they are not uh, in the household of God, even though they think that they are. They're so confident that they're good with God just because they're in the right family, have the right ethnicity, and the right nationality. And we could be tempted to do the same thing as well. Yet Jesus is bringing the tough news that they're not sons and daughters, but rather like slaves who are on the outside of the home because of our sin. In fact, this comes up a lot more next week. Pastor Chris will unpack that next week, where Jesus even keeps going. He says, you guys think you're sons of Abraham. Well, guess what? You're not even sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. And so it's going to get feisty next week. So come back. Pastor Chris will unpack when Jesus calls people the sons of the devil. That'll be fun. So when Jesus uh, is saying, whoever sins is a slave to sin, he's not just calling out this crowd. He's calling all humanity. He's calling you and me out. He's calling the, the people who are at the top of the moral ladder and the, the worst of the worst. He's calling the scumbags and the pretty good upstanding citizens, the guilty and the shameful, those at the top of the moral hierarchy and those who are at the bottom because all are slaves to sin, because we all sin. We can't help it. We can't stop it. We can't be freed from it. What Jesus is talking about here, he, he uses slaves to sin type language. The Bible uses all different kinds of language to unpack this doctrine. This doctrine that we are sinners in need of a savior. We cannot save ourselves. The Bible uses language like we have original sin or we have a sin nature that we're just born into. We didn't just start out neutral and then kind of learned to sin. The Bible also talks about us being spiritually bankrupt. We have a debt that we could never pay because of our sin. Or it also describes our hearts and souls as being depraved. Or our bodies and souls just being spiritually dead. And we don't just need a little fixing or a little washing up. We need resurrection. 
And likewise, here Jesus is helping us see that we're not just kind of entangled by just a little bit of sin. We just need a scissors to kind of cut off the small rope or the small vine that's holding us back a little bit. But rather, Jesus is saying we are imprisoned. We have chains around us because of our sin, and we are without hope of emancipation. Sin is our master, and we, by ourselves, cannot free ourselves. Now, just to be clear, when Jesus says this, he's not saying that you are as evil as you could be, or that every single thing you do and think is completely uh, evil and sinful. Nor is he saying that there's not, like, uh, levels of, of sin and evil, right? Like our judicial code. If someone goes to court for breaking the law, there is a difference between murder and, and speeding, right? Jesus is not saying that. But what he is saying is that by ourselves, we cannot win our freedom. We cannot pay our debt. We cannot bust out of jail. We cannot become our own masters. But rather, we sin is our master. Now listen, listen to Paul. So Paul was an early church leader appointed by Jesus. Uh, maybe look at his life and call him a super Christian. Like, you know, he, he's doing really well. Yet he writes a letter to the church. And, and listen to how he describes this like inner turmoil that he has. This wrestling with, I want to do good, but I can't. He says this in Romans. And this is a Christian that's wrestling with it. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not only the, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss <laughs> going back and forth here. But Paul's arguing, and you probably feel the same way. What I hate about myself, the, the ways I gossip, the way I hate people, the way I'm so self-focused, my, my, my anger, my lust, my, my arrogance, my racism, my sexism in my heart, I hate it about me, but I just can't help but doing it. And the stuff I want to do with my life, being self-controlled and loving and forgiving and generous, I want to do that, but I just can't. Of course I do sometimes, and of course I don't sin sometimes when I don't want to, but I just, by myself, I can't. Kind of reminds me of the song lyrics that we sang last week uh, in the DC Talk song, In the Light, where they say, tell me, what's going on inside me? I despise my own behavior. This only proves all the more that I need a savior. So I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe it's gossip. Maybe you're a gossip. You love to gossip. You love to tell juicy details. You love to be in the know. And you fight so hard because you know it's sinful and hurts people. You try so hard to not gossip. And maybe you have victory for a few weeks or a few months. But you fall back into it once you hear a juicy detail. You just can't help but bite your lip. Or maybe it's, the, you, you know, a sin of lust in your, your life. You're tempted to dehumanize people, to see them as objects. Maybe you've had weeks or months or even years of victory of not lusting after others and, and looking at porn, but you fall back into it. You just cannot be released from the prison of that sin. Or, or maybe it's anger. Maybe you have an anger problem, and it comes out in you hurting people through your words or even your actions. Maybe you have victory over it for a long time, but eventually it still squeaks through. It comes up in your life 
in another place. Or even if on the outside you're pretty good with your actions, if we honestly look deep in our hearts, we would realize that our motives, our thoughts betray us and are filled with self-service and arrogance and hatred, entitlement, and more. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. We are slaves to our sin. We might even seem to have victory over some sins in some parts of our life, but we will, apart from Christ, always fall back into it. We have no hope in and of ourselves to have victory and freedom from it. But like always, Jesus doesn't just drop bad news. He does give them bad news. These first few sentences are bad news. The crowd's very angry with them. How dare you call us sinners? How dare you call us enslaved to something? You're insulting us, Jesus. But he does it because he loves them. And he does it because it's true of them. And because he has good news that he's about to follow. He's telling them, you can never earn your freedom. You can never pay back your debt. And then he gives them the good news. One of the cool, in my opinion, one of the coolest things that Jesus does, just a total stud moment. When he, when he starts his ministry in uh, the Gospel of Luke, his public ministry, one of the first things he does is he goes into a synagogue and he picks up a scroll. So an ancient scroll from an ancient Jewish prophet. He unrolls it and he reads it. And then he says, this is talking about me. He, he reads his prophecy about the coming king, the coming Messiah, the chosen one. He reads it and then tells the crowd, hey, this is me. I'm the chosen one. He puts the scroll down and then just sits down. And the crowd's like, you know, who is this guy? This guy is from like the backwoods. He's, he's a no-name person. How dare he say this? We read about this in Luke 4. Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah and says this is about him. Uh, starting in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you know Jesus' life and his ministry, he does a bunch of this. We've seen this in John so far. He has literally touched blind people and, and given them their sight back. He has, has spoken to the marginalized and the people on the fringes of society and the poor and has given them good news. He's proclaiming the, years, the, he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Yet, he has not gone to a jail or a prison and proclaimed liberty or freedom to them. I mean, maybe he did, but it's not here in the Bible. Nor has he uh, given freedom to all of his, his kindred, all of his people, the Jewish people who are being brutally oppressed by the Romans right now. So what's going on here? When Jesus says, this is me, this is me, but we're like, Jesus, but what about verses, you know, 18 and 19 there? So either Jesus is lying or there's got to be a deeper, more important, more ultimate meaning in what's going on here. And that's what Jesus is picking up here today. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, has been filled with the Spirit of God, like he read from the prophet Isaiah, and he's bringing spiritual freedom to those who have been captive by sin. He's emancipating those who are slave to sin and imprisoned by it and destined for death. The oppression of sin and its path to death, spiritual and physical death, is overthrown by Jesus. 
The Son of God brings freedom. And it's a total freedom. It's a full freedom, an eternal freedom. A freedom that defeats sin. A freedom that gives us new hearts and minds and motivations and desires. And a freedom that even brings adoption into the household of God. So Jesus says in verse 36, So if the Son, has, uh, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus is the Son that he's speaking about here. So this is the good news. The bad news is you are slaves. You are imprisoned. There's no hope. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. But here's the good news. If the Son sets you free, you will be fully free. You will be eternally free. You will be free indeed. And I am that son. And the question we're probably asking now is, well, what are we free from? What does that mean that we are free indeed if the son sets us free? We're free from many things. And here's just a few. We are free from guilt. So apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are guilty. We have shame because we know we are guilty. We have done bad things. We have rebelled against God. Our motives are impure. We've, we've hurt people. Yet in Christ, by trusting in the gospel, Jesus gives us his innocence. He declares us not guilty. As we just saying, he washes our sins away. And so our ledger, rather than full of blood and black spots from all the evil that we've done, is now white and clean. So freedom in Christ means we are free from guilt. Christian, you are free from being guilty. Before God, the ultimate judge, you are innocent if you are in Christ. Two, we are free from the prison of sin or the power of sin. Like we said before, apart from Christ, you are a slave to sin. You can fight it all you want. You can work really hard. You can put in safeguards on your computer. You can have accountability partner. You can uh, beat yourself down, try to make your body and mind submit to what you wanted to. But we can't Stop it, apart from Christ. We are slaves to sin, but now in Christ, we are free from the power of sin. If you are a Christian now, you have a new heart, you have a new mind, you've been made a new creation. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and you now have the power to stop sinning. It, it probably won't happen every time. It might not even happen most times, or you might digress for a while. But now in Christ, you have freedom from being imprisoned and enslaved and ensnared by sin. Now in Christ, you can not sin. And for some of you, you might feel like, no way. I've tried. I've tried to stop doing this, looking at this, saying this, seeing people like this my entire life, and I just cannot stop. But the truth is today, Jesus is saying, in him, through the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, you can have power over sin. Evil sin, dark sin, vicious sin, all-consuming sin through Jesus. And third, freedom in Christ means you will be free from the love of sin. Okay? And this is, this is a process. This is a lifetime with Jesus and his spirit ripping away sinful motives and, 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 and slowly changing our hearts. But if you've been a Christian for quite a while, you've probably seen this in your life. Like what was really attractive to you, now maybe not so much anymore. Right? It's just sin and the, 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 the pleasures, the desires have just started to wane because there's something even greater. 
your Savior, your Lord, your God. Maybe some of us, when we converted, our, our uh, motivations actually completely changed. Maybe you went from being a porn addict to, to being converted, and then you just saw that as disgusting and, and never wanted to go back. Or maybe it's been true about alcohol or an anger problem. But for others, it just takes a long time as the Holy Spirit slowly sanctifies us and make us, makes us more like Jesus. The, our desires, our loves begin to change. Now, freedom, we've been talking lots about freedom. We're using this word. Freedom is kind of a unique thing, at least in this life and, and with these bodies. If we think about the word freedom, which we do in America often, if we think about the word freedom as the absence of any constraints or any limitations, then we will just be severely disappointed. When we think about freedom, if we think no one will ever tell me what to do and I can do whatever I want, uh, we're going to be very disappointed. Or as the great theologian and Minnesotan, Bob Dylan, once said, you got to serve somebody. I'm going to read this, not sing this. Uh, you're welcome. But Bob Dylan says, you might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, you might like to drink whiskey, you might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be thinking, the inner voice in your head, my head is saying, nah, Jesus, nah, Bob Dylan, I'm different. I'm different than that. I'm my own person. I am the master of my own fate. I am my boss. I serve no one. Or maybe like the confused crowd in our passage here today, you say, I'm American. I'm born in the land of the free. Maybe I'm my own boss. Maybe I'm an adult now and I don't have to listen to my parents anymore. Whatever it might be. Yet if we think about it, and think about freedom, we realize that in order to have freedom in our lives, it means that we're sacrificing something else. In order to have freedom, we're submitting to and serving something else. It's just always like that. Tim Keller gives this example here. This is actually not Tim Keller. This is just, you know, a stock photo here. But th this is his uh, argument, so I'm going to quote him. So he says, imagine a guy in his 60s, newly retired, and he has two loves. He loves to eat and drink the greatest things this world has to offer. He loves to be free to eat and drink whatever he wants. And he has a second love, his grandkids. He wants to have the freedom to spend as much time with them as he wants. Because he's newly retired and he loves them deeply. But the problem is those two freedoms cannot fully coexist. He might think that they can, but when he talks to his wife or his doctor, they're going to say, um, if you want to spend as much time with your grandkids... Uh, you're going to have to stop, you know, eating Skittles and drinking Mountain Dew every single meal because that, that is going to uh, kill you and probably kill you pretty soon. Or at the very least, you're not going to have energy. You're going to be grouchy. You're going to be in poor health. And so just in reality, we realize in order to have the freedom in one area, you have to deny other things. If he wants to spend many years with his grandkids, he's going to have to give up the freedom to eat and drink whatever he wants. Or... If he wants to eat and drink whatever he wants, he's going to have to give up the freedom of having many, many years spending with his grandkids that he likes. So that's just one example. Th think of other things that we want in our lives. Freedom, you know, of every, if you have a great job, good income, 
We all want that, you know, uh, because we think it brings lots of freedom, right? If money is not an option, if I am the boss, oh, think about the great freedom I can have. But the problem with that is that you have to serve something to get there, right? You have to work hard. You have to probably get good grades at school. You have to study a lot. You have to work long hours. You have to submit to a boss that's probably a jerk or that you're smarter than. Um, While all your friends are partying and sleeping in and having fun, you have to work hard to get to that point where you have financial freedom or time freedom. But even once you get there, you have to work hard to keep it, to keep that job, to make sure you don't lose your investments or, or whatever it might be. Or maybe another type of freedom. Maybe you just think, well, if I was a rock star or a pro athlete, man, they can do whatever they want, right? If I'm LeBron James, if I am Shakira, I can, you know, I can do whatever I want. I have money, I have power, I have influence. I will have complete freedom if I just had that. But the reality is to get to that point, countless hours of sacrifice, of practice, having your schedule dictated to you, not being able to choose where you live. And again, once you get to the top and even have some of that freedom, you have to work your butt off to keep it. So you're not actually fully free. And we could go on and on. So Keller summarizes all this by just saying, you are then not free to do whatever you choose. That is an impossible idea and not the way freedom actually works. Sorry, bad news. Culture has fed you a lie. That is actually not the way that freedom actually works. You get the best freedoms only if you are willing to submit your choices to various realities if you honor your own design. This this is what he means by that at the end. That is the freedom that Jesus offers us. He doesn't save us and then you get to do whatever you want, no consequences. But rather Jesus saves us and gives us freedom from guilt. He gives us freedom from the power of sin and death ruling us. Jesus gives us freedom from the love of sin. We don't have to love evil anymore. He changes our hearts. He frees us to thrive under a new law. Sorry, under a new love. To thrive in a new relationship with him as our Lord and Master and God. And that is exactly what we're designed to do. As Bob Dylan said, we're, we're all designed to serve somebody. And you can serve yourself, you can serve other things, you can serve the devil, and that will all lead to destruction and meaninglessness and frustration. Or we can serve our Creator and our God and our Savior, which we are designed to do, and we can live, we can thrive, we can flourish. So you must serve something, and we'll actually be the most free when we, are, when we, will, when we serve the thing we were created to serve. C.S. Lewis famously talked about a fish being most free when it is in water, right? The fish like us might think, well, I'm limited. I can't go up in the air. I can't go up on land. If I could just do those things, like the little mermaid, right? I just, I just want to be a part of a different world. But the reality is once the fish jumps out of uh, the water, the fish is no longer free. When the fish is living in the constraints of staying in water, that is a constraint, He is the most free that he can be. And that is the same with us. We are designed to live in relationship with our Savior and Master and Lord and God. And we will thrive under that. So what are we designed to serve? What should we be slaves to? Strong language again, but 
Rebecca McLaughlin, the, the author of Confronting Christianity, she points out that, that uh, I think it's like a dozen either New Testament authors or char you know, characters in the New Testament, they describe themselves as slaves to Christ, as servants of Christ. So Paul, comma, a slave to Jesus Christ, comma, writing to the church in Romans. Like that's all over the New Testament. The, the early church, Jesus' disciples, saw themselves as, as bought, redeemed, bought, uh, out of the prison of sin and death, and now they have a new master, a new Lord, a new Savior. And it's their honor, it's their joy to see Christ as their master, or as Lord. The word Lord means master. And so we are servants to Christ. We are slaves to Christ. First Corinthians 6, Paul says, you, Christian, you are not your own anymore. You are bought with a price. You have been redeemed from the prison of death and slavery. And so because of that, honor God with your life and with your body. Like a train on its tracks, we will be most free and most joyful as we serve and submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now last thing, as we wrap up here, Jesus says, you will be free if the Son sets you free. The Son, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but he hasn't said how this is going to happen yet because it hasn't happened in this story yet. We're going to see this multiple times throughout John as we get closer to his death and resurrection. But how does the Son set us free? We are set free when the Master, the Lord of the universe, himself becomes a slave. Jesus says in Matthew, towards the end of his ministry, he says, the Son of Man, so he's speaking of himself, the Son of Man came not to, not to be served. His mission was not to be served, but to serve. To become a slave, to become a servant. And what is he going to do as that? He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom means to buy someone back out of slavery. To buy someone out of prison because they have a huge debt. So Jesus says, this was my mission. This is why I came into the world. I came not so that humanity during these 30 plus years that he's alive would bow down before him as Lord of the universe, which wouldn't be wrong. It's legit. I mean, he, he could have asked us to do that. But he, but he said, I came into the world. This was my mission to serve humanity. And the way I'm going to serve humanity is by I'm going to become a slave. I'm going to become a servant. And in doing so, I'm going to ransom them all back from slavery. I'm going to pay the penalty that's keeping them imprisoned in sin and death. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that we fully see as we keep reading the gospel of John. The good news is that the Son of God became a slave in order to free men and women who were enslaved to sin and death redeeming and ransoming them, and in doing so, welcoming them into the household of God and adopting them as sons and daughters who are now co-heirs with Christ. Galatians 4 kind of summarizes everything we've been talking about today, and we're going to end with this. If you're a Christian here today, this is a description of what Christ has done for you, the reality of your life. If you're not a Christian here today, if you have questions, if you're curious, if you're wondering, this is what Jesus did. King of the universe became a slave so that slaves can be free and adopted back into 
the family of God. This is what Jesus offers you today if you're not a believer. This is true about you if you are a Christian. Galatians 4, 3 through 7 says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news, this good news that too good to be true. We are your enemies, we were imprisoned, we were evil, we were spiritually dead, we were bankrupt before you, yet you chose to send your son. Your son chose to enter this world with his mission to become a servant for the slaves so that we could be bought out of that. Help us, help us to receive that here today, to believe, to, to not work hard to pay off our debt or to work hard to break out of prison, but to simply submit to you and say, I need a savior. I need a redeemer. I need someone to ransom me. Jesus, we thank you that you have done that for, for so many people here in this room, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that we are free in Christ. We have victory in Christ. We are sons and daughters of uh, God, that we are co-heirs with Christ. Can't even fathom what, what all the fruit, all the realities of what this means. And we pray for those in this room who haven't believed yet. Help them to see what's true about themselves, that they are imprisoned, that they can work their butts off for their entire life, and they will not pay off their debt. They will not break out of jail. And that's bad news, but the good news is that you just offer a get-out-of-jail card. You offer uh, a ransom to be paid. You offer us being welcomed into your family and having a new identity and a new life. And finally, God, just change our hearts. Help us to see that serving you, not just our own wants and desires, but serving you is what we were created for. It brings joy and it helps us flourish and it is what, yeah, what we were designed for. Help us in our unbelief and in the sin we still wrestle with. We pray for more victory in Christ by the power of your spirit. Amen.